Hello, everyone. Welcome to the final episode of season one. Didn't know Go Forth and Science had seasons? Great, neither did I. But guess what? It does. After this episode, I'll be taking a break to put more time into the other two jobs I have while they ramp up in the summer. The last two years have been such a crazy time for everyone, and it's been amazing to get to tell these stories to you. Honestly, producing a podcast every month is really the only way I know it's not still 2020. And to conclude all these incredible tales of adventure and science, our planet and space and people, I couldn't imagine a better guest. So throw on your goggles and snorkel, because we are about to hear from someone who is literally an expert on ocean storytelling. Hi, I'm Kate Harubi, and this is Go Forth and Science Podcast, where we combine adventure and science into a tale that will hopefully make the next time you step outside even better. My name is Dr. Kelly Bushnell, and I'm a scholar and a teacher of the ocean humanities. So I study and teach ocean literature, history, and culture in the archives and out in the field. Unlike a lot of literature professionals, I try to do a lot of the going forth and getting out of the archives as much as possible and underwater. And I do that by teaching for programs like Williams Mystic and out at the Education Association. And also as a scuba diving instructor here in Puget Sound for Seattle Dive Tours. And I also lead trips around the world for them. One of the things that I find the most fascinating about what you do, and I hope everybody else will as well, is that you combine these two topics that in a lot of people's brains are completely separate. How do you connect or balance both literature and the ocean? That is part of what I like about it is that it's really different. So I always tell people I always knew I wanted to study the ocean and be an ocean explorer and be underwater. And so I did the traditional thing, which was I went and got a PhD in Victorian literature. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, but but to back up, we'll get there. So I did, I, even when I was a tiny kid, I always knew I wanted to study the ocean. I was fascinated by marine biology. I grew up spending every summer here on the Salish Sea on a tiny island with no electricity, no running water just going with totally by the schedule of the tide. And when the tide is out, we're out crawling through the tide pools and looking for cool stuff. And when the tide's in, my sister and I were underwater with our little masks and snorkels zooming around the bay. And of course it was freezing. And I don't know how, you know, I could never do it without a dry suit now, but when you're 10, you can't feel it. And so I always knew I wanted to study the ocean. And what I realized is I grew up somewhat sort of high school and starting to make decisions about college majors was that as much as I loved marine biology, even more, I love the stories that we tell about the animals of the ocean. So I realized that I wanted to access the ocean through the imagination and the ways that historically people have written about and talked about and sung about and painted the animals that live under the water. And so even, you know, in the world of maritime literature and the world of ocean literature, a lot of that research is really focused on the human interaction with the ocean. So I did my undergrad at UC San Diego. So there's always really cool maritime things going on down there. But then when I did my PhD in London and had access to the British Library and Natural History Museum and Senate House Library and all these really fantastic archives I was working in, I realized that what fascinated me the most and excited me the most were the historical accounts of sea creatures themselves. 
And I started asking questions like, what would it mean for us to take sea creatures seriously from an aesthetic perspective? What stories do they tell? How do they interact with their environments? And how has that been written into the literature, the historiography, and even into the visual arts and music? So that was my way into studying literature. And so I did that in an English department under the guise of Victorian literature, but really I was doing sea things. Then finally, when grad school wasn't taking up all my time anymore, <laughs> I finally uh, had time to get back underwater and I started diving. I'd always been, you know, swimming around and free diving and doing stuff like that. But it wasn't until I started studying more extreme environments, especially the Arctic, that I realized that, you know, you can't duck dive in a dry suit. So I was going to have to learn to scuba. And I did that with Seattle Dive Tours, which is where I now teach and teaching alongside the instructors that made me a scuba diver is one of the most exciting things career-wise that I've ever done. And I have to give a shout out to Seattle Dive Tours because they're the folks I got my scuba certs with a year ago. And there is really no better group of people to make you feel comfy and cozy in and around 50 degree water. Even if my adrenaline is rushing so fast because I just saw the coolest sea slug that I'm not paying attention to the cold at all. I don't know if you know this, but in diving, in recreational scuba, only 20% of dive pros are women. And today's International Women's Day when we're recording this, which is great. <laughs> uh, only 20% of dive pros are women, but at our, our shop is about 75% women. And we're bringing more women into cold water diving. And I think it's really important for students to see a dive shop that's largely staffed by women that we're out there, you know, in our dry suits, we're not falling into any of the stereotypes that you see kind of on Instagram of what female divers look like or are supposed to look like, because there's really just no being worried about what you look like in cold water diving. You just can't do it. <laughs> yeah, not at all. It's <laughs> really liberating. It's fantastic. This feminism vein that we are on right now, I love. <laughs> well, and especially in the ocean context, right? So historically, the way that maritime history has been told is about wooden ships and iron men braving the high seas when really that's not the whole story there have always been women at sea under the sea around the sea it's just that our stories have not been told so I, th I think that's really important to make sure that women understand that this is a place that we belong to because we've always been there our story just hasn't been told and that's what we need the humanities for in addition to the sciences because we're all out there putting in the work, but who's telling the story and making sure that younger girls know that this environment is for them too. Is that one of your guiding missions as a- 100%. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I am always so excited when I teach a class that has any age of woman in it, because that's one of the coolest parts is also bringing older women into scuba diving and creating this kind of multi-generational community around diving. But yes, that is a guiding principle in everything I do. <laughs> We've talked a little bit about this throughout your stories, but what are some ways that you interact with the ocean? On a sort of day-to-day -day basis, you know, when you live in the Salish Sea, you're never very far from the water. So getting eyes on the water every single day is the most sort of inspiring and centering thing I can do for my work practice. And then on the weekends, you know, I'm underwater with Seattle Dive Tours and as much as I can during the week too. And that's just so exciting to see the entire year's seasonal changes on a single dive site. We mostly dive in West Seattle, Seacrest, good old Seacrest Cove too. And so being able to just see from week to week and sometimes day to day, 
which critters are we seeing? And even throughout the course of the day, in the morning, as the sort of the night creatures go away, and, and then at night, where the harbor seals want to come hunt with your light. On the micro and macro scales, there are so many different changes that take place, even on the dive site that you know, like the back of your hand throughout the course of the day, the month, the year. It's really special. It never gets old. I mean, it's like having a tree in your backyard that you exactly. see every day. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, yes. And then the rest of the week, I'm mostly you know, doing research and writing about the cultural aspects of the sea. So working on a piece now about, uh, I'm calling it right whales in the wrong places. Um, so whales that end up that are supposed to be in one part of the global one ocean and turn up in the quote-unquote wrong place as harbingers of climate change. So really trying to bring together the science and the humanities and the culture through the lens of history. Is the beluga this past summer going to make Oh boy, he was sure one of my inspirations. (laughs) (laughs) And just got the entire Sailor Sea riled up about Mm. belugas. (laughs) For folks who aren't in the Sailor Sea or didn't hear the news, we had a shocking whale visitor last fall. Beluga whales primarily live in the Arctic Ocean or around Alaska, but one decided to make a journey all the way down to Seattle. We're not sure why he was here, but he got all the whale nerds in the area on high alert for a month while folks tried to keep tabs on a small white whale during a time of the year when there are a lot of whitecaps on the water that look like small white whales. And speaking of Arctic creatures, what are some of the places that you've studied, traveled, or worked? I have been really fortunate to be able to go a lot of different very cool places, either through expeditions or grants or something like that. And coming from California and spending all my summers in the Salish Sea, that would be enough. I mean, for a whole lifetime. But teaching at Williams Mystic, we got to live right at Mystic Seaport, which is basically a a working historic port. Before that, I was on a fellowship at the Rachel Carson Center in Munich, writing about the North, writing about the Arctic, because that is one of my research areas. So the Arctic Ocean has been pretty central to a lot of my work the last five years or so. From a literary perspective, one text that I often like to teach is Frankenstein. And you say, why does an ocean literature professor want to teach Frankenstein? Well, I'm really fascinated by why Mary Shelley chose to frame the narrative of the monster with an Arctic Ocean voyage. So a lot of people forget because this part just gets totally lost in the films. But the beginning and end of Frankenstein, the novel, take place on an Arctic Ocean voyage. And I think it's one of the most fascinating pieces because this is not random. And I think that the Arctic is also, it's not necessarily a place that people from the South realize or think about as a colonized place. But during the 19th century, all the way up to today, it absolutely is. And then also science has really been a tool of colonialism in the Arctic, which culturally has led people to very rightfully distrust science in the Arctic. So I've done a couple expeditions, Greenland, Nunavut, the far north of Norway, and especially focusing on the interactions between traditional ecological knowledge, so indigenous knowledge and storytelling and science. And being in the water in the Arctic is just unbelievable. Being on sites that no one has ever dived as one of, I think, the greatest privileges of my life to spend that time with the people who've been there for a thousand years. That was also, unfortunately, a far northwest of Greenland where I had my first dry suit flood. Oh, no. <laughs> and only fortunately, but yes, that uh, 33 degree Fahrenheit water. That was my, <laughs> that was my first dry suit, catastrophic dry suit flood. 
Ooh, rough time. Tell the tale. I was going to ask what the coldest water you've ever been in. <laughs> was it that? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, you're uh, floating around with the ice. <laughs> yep. What are some of the greatest impacts that humans have on the ocean? Well, I mean, continuing with the Arctic, it can't even be overstated, the impact that we've had on the Arctic. But it's also very hard to see if you say just travel there for a couple of weeks. Because without that long-term traditional ecological knowledge, Nunavut in um, in the Inuktitut language is called Inuit Hoyimayatukangi. Most people translate that as what Inuit have always known. But some of the elders that I know actually translate it a little bit differently as what Inuit have learned. So really that emphasis on evolving knowledge. And unless you have a thousand years of knowledge passed down, it would be really hard to see the impacts of anthropogenic climate change. Because, I mean, let's face it, scientists don't always do the best job of narrativizing or making that kind of information go from chart to brain very well. (laughs) That is why we are doing what we are doing. (laughs) Exactly. And so that is definitely probably the most dramatic place I've been in terms of climate change. But then also just smaller impacts or really localized impacts, like when I was teaching with Williams Mystic and we sailed with Sea Education Association through the Caribbean. So from Puerto Rico Trench to the Greater Antilles, and we stopped on the island of St. John in the U.S. Virgin Islands. And we hiked up to the Annaberg Sugar Plantation. And that was, that was an incredible teaching day for me because we read a poem that chronicles the 1733 uprising of the people enslaved there, right where the poem took place, right in, this, in the sugar plantation. But one of the things that no research could have really prepared me for before I got there was that a lot of the bricks of the actual plantation, these huge bricks that are the size of large loaves of bread, they're not the small bricks that we normally think of. They were stone, but then the ones that had to be replaced were made of brain coral from the reef that's just below the plantation. So you're up on this cliff and you're looking over down at the reef that you can still see some coral on it. But then as you walk through the plantation, you realize that a lot of the bricks that have been kind of wedged in where the architecture started to fade and this was, you know, we're talking on the order of 100, 200 years ago, were carved out of huge pieces of brain coral. And so taking the reef and actually creating this plantation, this place of such violence and hideous history right out of the reef there. And then that afternoon we climbed down and we put our students on the reef snorkeling so they could see that essentially it's no longer a functioning reef. Uh, All the coral that's left is completely bleached due to global warming, chemicals, everything anthropogenic. And so that was one of those days that just connected every dot in terms of the history, the literature, the culture, the science. I still think about it all the time. And I think a really central tenet of all of my research and teaching is that reminder that the exploitation of our natural resources always goes hand in hand with the exploitation of people. And that, you know, climate change hits women and people of color harder. And that the people least responsible for climate change are already the most affected. For those folks who don't spend all of their time in and around the ocean like we do, how can we get more people to care about the ocean? 
I mean, that's a million dollar question, right? If we knew we'd be doing it. And, you know, fortunately there are different ways to reach different people. Not everyone's the same, but I think this is one of the reasons that I love working in the humanities is because plenty of the folks who don't respond to cold, hard science do respond to stories and narratives. It humanizes. And my concern is always that by quote unquote humanizing the ocean, I'm being anthropocentric. I'm trying to put everything through the human lens, which is exactly how we got here in the first place. But I do think that studying the humanities and writing in a non-academic way is a way to address some of these things. Microplastics is a good example of the ways that some of the more narrativizing has really worked. And it's also a good example of one of the problems that can only be solved through total cooperation between the sciences and the humanities. When problems are caused by humans, they have to be solved by humans from every discipline. Right, which is something I find exciting and something that, of course, I have a little chip on my shoulder as a non-scientist operating in these spaces. Like, I'm doing good stuff too, guys. <laughs> Let me play in the submersible. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, and so I also am a big fan of meeting people where they are. I'm not out here trying to get 10% of people to be 90% better. I'm out here trying to get 90% of people to be just 10% better because you know, and this is certainly more of a critique of capitalism than anything else, that the true problems, it's not your neighbor drinking out of a straw. It's big corporations. The more that I think we can remind people that we're not blaming them and that the true problem is capitalism, then we can all start to make better decisions too about which companies we support. I think we've all given up things like plastic straws and non-reusable bags, and that's really important. But I think we also have to recognize that some of those things are red herrings by companies who are still doing the most damage and have the most power to change our environment. So making sure that people know that the best thing they can do is putting pressure on the biggest polluters to be 10% better even. Don't worry, this is not the first time I've bashed capitalism on this podcast. (laughs) Yeah, I I figured. So what is the coolest thing that you have seen underwater? And I recognize that this might be a difficult question. (laughs) Oh, man. How lucky am I that it's such a difficult question? I think the coolest thing I've ever seen underwater, recently I had a really cool tiger shark interaction last year in Kona, but my favorite ever, ever underwater memory is in 2009, I had just graduated from undergrad. I was headed to grad school at Mills the next year. And my now husband was headed off to Navy flight school. And it was just this big time, everything was changing. And my sister and I went to the Galapagos Islands for a couple of weeks. And we traveled all around the Galapagos on this little boat. And she was halfway through UCLA and she was studying evolutionary biology. But we were just snorkeling, kind of free diving around. And we were in the mouth of this cave and it felt like the other, you know, five or six people that had come on the Zodiac. I don't even know where they were. They didn't exist. And we're at the mouth of this cave where the light is just penetrating the cave and then everything inside of it is dark. And out of the darkness, maybe like 20 feet below us, comes this school of golden rays And I remember saying, you should count them in your mind. You should try to remember how many there were. 
and my sister, we reached over kind of at the same time and took each other's hand and the current's pretty strong in Galapagos. So, you know, we're getting pulled along as well. And we just held hands and we watched and 30 golden rays come out of this cave and then disappear out into the deeper part of the water, into the darkness. But I just remember how truly golden they were as the sun shone on the tops of them and how slow all their wingtips were moving and how they all seemed to be in unison. It's a moment that felt like a year. I'm here with my best friend, my favorite person at this just, you know, big crucial moment in your life. And those rays, they just came out of the darkness and went back into the darkness as slow and calm as an animal could possibly get. I don't think I'll ever have a happier moment underwater. I'm not overly mystical about the ocean, even though it feels like magic all the time when I'm there. But yeah, you know, there are times where you just think, how could I be so lucky? This is just truly magic. But it's even cooler that it's not. It's even cooler that it's real. Being a small human in a gigantic ocean also just makes me truly feel like I'm participating in the grand narrative of every creature that has ever lived. I think that that is a great line to end on. Do you want to share your Instagram or your website or anything like that to folks who are interested in following you or finding out more about you and the cool things that you do? Yeah, sure. Well, over at uh, kellypbushnell.com, I've got some writing and that kind of stuff. And then over on Instagram at Dr. Kelpie, so D-R dot K-E-L-P-Y. That's my handle. I'm Dr. Kelpie, <laughs> as my students like to call me. And yeah, definitely connect, come diving, come hang out in the Salish Sea. I'm partial, but I do think it's the best place in the entire universe. I mean, I would agree with you. And mm-hmm. I'm also super biased. But <laughs> amazing. Well, thank you so much for being on and sharing all of these stories and talking about the things that you're clearly passionate about and hopefully we'll get other people passionate about them as well. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Kate. And now for an episode recap. When it comes to understanding our planet, stories are just as important as science. Whether that's indigenous knowledge passed down through generations or something that happened to you in your lifetime that might inspire someone to learn more. Like how I'm about to go Google Galapagos Golden Rays after hearing Kelly's story about snorkeling with them. And it's also vital that we consider people of color and women when we're gathering this knowledge. They are usually not included in the narrative of ocean exploration and science and storytelling, but this place is theirs as well. They are the folks that are also most impacted by climate change. And yes, while we're listening to this podcast on our commutes to work or standing in line at a coffee shop, we are part of the problem. But it's really the big corporations who are having the greatest impacts on climate change and the exploitation of our planet, and also have the biggest capacity to make a change for good. Kelly aims to get a lot of people to make small changes, rather than just a few people to make a big change. And one thing we can do as individuals listening to this right now is to decide whether we are going to continue to support those big corporations. I hope everyone has a fantastic spring and summer full of exploration and learning. And over the next few months, tell a story to someone about something that excites you. It could be about science or nature or adventure, or it could just be about your grandmother's recipe that you finally made. Stories are about sharing and connecting, and there can always be more of that in our world. If you're listening to this episode and you want to learn more about the stories and literature we are talking about here, Kelly sent me links to a few of her book lists. 
You can find those on my website, goforthinscience.com podcast, and get ready to have the next year of your reading planned out because there's a lot of good content there. You can also find a link to Seattle Dive Tours there as well if anyone listening to this is a diver or is interested in learning to dive and is looking for a great shop to support in the Seattle area. You too can go chat with Kelly about sea creatures and literature in between jaunts into the ocean. And thank you to the moon and back to everyone who has tuned in or been on this podcast over the last two years. It's been a truly great time.